Welcome to today's podcast. I'm Scott Knuckles with The Untold Story. Thank you for joining me. I hope today's message will drive you to a greater faith, a more lasting hope, and a deeper love for others and yourself. I'm reminded of the quote by Thomas Edison. He said, Many of life's failures are people who did not realize how close they were to success when they gave up. Let's get started with today's podcast. Emma Donahue in 2010 wrote a book called Room. It's loosely inspired by a true story. In 2015, Room was made into a feature film. It garnered many nominations and won many awards. Room is about a teenage girl named Joy. She was kidnapped by a man called Old Nick. He used a sick dog as a lure to capture her. He built a room and a shed for her to live in. It featured a bed, a bathroom, and a small kitchen. The room consisted of only one window, a skylight. It was a mere 10-foot by 10-foot room. In the midst of such pain and heartache, Joy found solace in a boy that she gave birth to, named Jack. She treasured this little life. For seven years, she stayed in that room, and for Jack, it was five. The room was small, but it had the basics needed to barely survive. And survive they did. This story is one of survival. There are many facets we can explore, but I want to home in on a couple of them. In the case of the mother, she desperately wanted to go back to the life she had, the life she remembered, one in which she didn't feel imprisoned. For Jack, he was content with the life he was living. His mom knew there was better, and Jack thought what he had was just fine. For Jack, what he didn't realize is that it is the unknowns that make such a difference. He just couldn't see it. Freedom, family, excitement, and a new life were waiting for him. But he felt that his present life was good enough. Nothing could really be better than this, could it? Toward the end of the story, I had bated breath and tears welling up in my eyes, which is hard for me. There is this hope that mother and son would escape their captor. With a carefully hatched plan by faking Jack's death, he is rolled up in a rug and placed in the back of old Nick's truck. At a stop sign is where Jack makes his getaway. He ends up in the arms of a stranger, just out of reach of old Nick. Not only did he escape, he led the authorities in finding his mom. Unfortunately for Jack, he would ask his mom from time to time to go back and live in that room. Yes, return to the room. For joy, Her dream was to go back to the way things were before. 
But little did she know that her new life would be very different from her old one. Today's podcast is entitled, Is Your Room Too Small? Do You Even Realize It? My bachelor's degree is in psychology, and one of the things I learned early on was a concept called learned helplessness. Have you ever heard that before? Learned helplessness. At first blush, you might ask yourself, how do I learn to be helpless? How? No one wants to be helpless. How can I learn to be helpless? Well, the best way to describe it is to share an experiment that was conducted. In 1965, Dr. Martin Seligman was doing research on classical conditioning. This process is one in which a human or animal associates one action with another. Now, please do not get upset with me about the experiments. I am a dog lover myself, so I am with you dog lovers out there. But the experiments, they work like this. In the first test, Dr. Seligman would ring a bell and then give a light shock to a dog. After a period of time, Dr. Seligman noticed something surprising. The dog would react even before the shock was administered. Meaning as soon as the dog heard the bell, the dog reacted as though he had already been shocked. After seeing this happen, the doctor expanded the test. He built a cage with two sides where a dog could easily jump from one side of the cage to the other to avoid the shock. What do you think the dog did? Escape or stay? Well, Dr. Sliegman, he expected the dog to escape to the other side to avoid the shock. However, the dogs in the experiment just laid down and took the shock even though there was a way to escape. Why? Why would they do that? See, the dogs concluded that there was nothing that could be done to avoid the shock, so might as well endure it. That leads me to the definition. Learned helplessness is not trying to get out of a negative situation because the past has taught you that you are helpless. It's a condition in which a person suffers from a sense of powerlessness arising from a traumatic event or persistent failure to succeed. It is thought that learned helplessness is one of the underlying causes of depression. The problem with learned helplessness is that it creates a negative feedback loop. When we feel powerless and helpless, our instinct is to do things or put ourselves in situations where we feel even more powerless and helpless. Now, I know that sounds counter, but that's what happens. We put ourselves in situations where we feel even more powerless and helpless. You know what else it does? It also puts us in a state of victimhood and it can lead us into depression. It can become an excuse in life for not trying or doing anything or just plain opting out. Over time, 
it literally ingrains itself in our character. Learned helplessness takes many different forms. Some are more severe than others. And I thought it'd be helpful to give some examples to get us thinking about this. Weight loss. If you've consistently failed at losing weight through different diets and exercise routines, you may believe that you will never be able to consistently lose weight. Even though you've established goals and have put forth a lot of time and energy, it doesn't seem to work. And perhaps you've been in a situation where you break your diet and then decide because you broke it, why stop breaking it now? Learned helplessness means that we give up trying new things because the past tells us it won't work. What about a feeling that you are dumb or stupid? A person works so hard to pass a test, they put every ounce of energy into it and they fail. Let's say it's in math and they fail again and again. And then they begin to think that they can't pass any other subject. They begin to believe that they are not smart enough to make it in school. They will never get that diploma, right? Or degree. I'm just not smart enough. They literally took one subject that they're struggling in and used it to think that they are not smart or capable. How about domestic violence? I've witnessed this firsthand. I've witnessed a family member that was verbally and physically abused and chose to stay in that relationship because they thought they were worthless. Something happens where the abused person believes that what the other person is saying is true or warranted, even when it isn't. They stay in the abusive relationship because they feel powerless. Let me ask you, many of us have kids that are in dating relationships. How many of them are staying in a dating relationship that has no future? But they stay because of the familiarity of it. They've settled in it. And they don't see things being much better. What about learning a new job? Someone does an excellent job, the same job, for a long period of time. But it goes away, and they believe that they won't be good at something new, despite the fact that they haven't even tried it. They believe the old saying, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. My daughter is going to college and working at Target, but not in an area where she is getting her degree. The job is one in which she is comfortable doing, but if she stays, she will forfeit goals and her plans for the future. In this case, we can dismiss our future goals because what we're doing now is far too comfortable. And finally, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about all of those that continue to struggle with addictive substances despite many attempts to quit, but has the feeling that they'll never be able to stop, even though there are many resources available to help that they have never tried. Learned helplessness also impacts our children, too. From Medical News Today, 
They describe low self-esteem, low motivation, low expectations of success, less persistence, not asking for help, ascribing a lack of success to a lack of ability, ascribing success to factors beyond their control, such as luck. The list can go on and on, but I think you get the drift of how learned helplessness works. See, this pattern of staying in our comfort zone will steal years of our life away. Our complacency will keep us stagnant and unable to grow. Now, I know what you're thinking. Like, what? What does the Bible say about this? You know, we have this amazing God. What does he say about this? Let's let's talk about it. The good news is that there are a number of things, a number of things that we can glean from the Bible about this. And I think there's an amazing story. There are many, but this is the one that I could think of that is most appropriate because it's severe and it really illustrates the point. So let's, let's talk about it. Let me set this story up. Joseph was a Hebrew, the son of Jacob, whose name is later changed to Israel. Joseph has multiple dreams as a young boy. His brothers become jealous and sell him into slavery, where he eventually lands in Egypt. Through many trials, Joseph stays faithful to God and is elevated to second in command to Pharaoh. This is in result to Joseph being able to do something that no one else was able to do throughout the entire kingdom, interpret dreams. He was able to interpret dreams that the king had about the future. He interpreted that a major famine was coming throughout the land and that precautions and preparations needed to begin immediately. What happens? The dream comes true and there is a severe famine. It becomes so severe that Joseph's father and siblings come to live in Egypt. Because of the king's trust in Joseph, he gives him the best part of the land. Think about this. The number that went to Egypt that were direct descendants of Jacob were 66 people, not counting wives. Here's where the story gets interesting. It's found in Exodus chapter 1. After about 400 years, the Israelites become large in number. The new king doesn't have the history that Joseph saved Egypt. He only sees that the Israelites have more people and appear to be mightier than the Egyptians. This new king decides to enslave them and puts harsh demands on the people to afflict them. He made their lives bitter with manual hard labor. The problem is that they continued to multiply dramatically. It's estimated that the 66 people grew to about 2 to 3 million people. 
The story evolves even more because God raises up a man named Moses. And he basically says, I have seen the hardship of my people and I want to deliver them. This is what he says to Moses. You know, I've seen this incredible hardship and I want to deliver them. In fact, if you look in chapter two, it says that when the king died, the children of Israel groaned because of their bondage and they cried out and their cry came up to God because of their bondage. The first really important point to overcoming learned helplessness is that in their agony, they cried for help. They cried for help to the one who could do something about it. And they didn't just do it once. They repeatedly cried out and God heard them. So Moses tells them exactly what God says. I am going to deliver you. But guess what happens? For the Israelites, it doesn't happen immediately. What happens to the people is that in the process of deliverance, things actually get harder before they get better. How many of you would agree that when you make your mind up to change or you're doing something you believe you're supposed to do, it doesn't get easier. It gets harder. Even with the promise of a prosperous life, what do the Israelites do? They decide that it is better to stay in Egypt as slaves than it is to be free because it's just too hard and it seems more doable, more familiar. They are so focused on the past and all they've gone through that they have forgotten what their future looks like. A future without enslavement and affliction. My friend, that is learned helplessness. Not only did they grumble against Moses, they grumbled against God. Even when they were delivered from the Egyptians through many miraculous signs, they still grumbled because things didn't look the way they thought they should. But what did God actually say to them? I'm going to give you an amazing land flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to take care of you in such a way that even your shoes won't wear out. Yes, even to that very detail. Learned helplessness blinded them into thinking that God wasn't going to remove the burden and so they should just stay in slavery. See, from their view, as the process of deliverance began, it appeared that the burden was growing, and it was. But just around the corner, they would see their enemy defeated and they would walk away with massive wealth, but they wanted to stay in slavery. Learned helplessness has some major side effects. It creates a victimhood mentality, and it reduces our faith and causes us to be weak and ineffective. Even though the Bible says that in Christ, we are overcomers. How big was their room? In their minds, 
Egypt was so big they wanted to go back there over and over again due to the hardship they faced, even though God had proved himself over and over again how powerful he was to deliver them and to provide for them and to promise them a new life. The second important point is that when God gives you a promise or there is a promise in his word for us as believers, we must stand on it. The Israelites were all for the deliverance and cried out to God, but they couldn't maintain because they allowed negativity, grumbling, and complaining to consume them. It cost them dearly. When we get a promise from God or we read a promise from the word that applies to us and it doesn't come to fruition, what do we do about it? Do we complain to others? Do we doubt that it is going to happen? Do we believe we're a victim and that those promises are only for someone else? This can't be so. For those of us that have a relationship with Jesus Christ, we must rise up and take the Bible and its promises for what it says. We must rise and believe what God has promised us. I want you to catch this. On your way to securing your promise, it might get harder. There might be discomfort for a season or two or three or more because he is working his perfect will in our lives and the people around us. What are we to do? We're to continue to bear up under it and trust that he has a plan and that it will be revealed in his perfect timing. The third important point is that we can't live in doubt. I want to read something to you. James 1, 5 through 8. It's one of my favorite passages. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Powerful. The Israelites asked God for help, and he came. However, they began to doubt, and doubt drove negativity. Let me ask you something. Isn't this word crystal clear? There are some powerful connections we can make here. Did you know that doubt gets to the core of our belief system? If we live in doubt, it means that we are in disbelief that God has a plan and that he will see to it that it comes to fruition. That is why the scripture is so important. When you doubt, you live in disbelief of who God is, the essence of who he is and what he came to do, what he can do in your life. 
Did you know there's another association here? It's that doubt and negativity go hand in hand. When you live in doubt, it gives rise to negativity. It means that we are not walking in faith or confidence, but in doubt and disbelief. You want to talk about something that hinders prayers and your relationship to God and others? Walking in doubt that leads to disbelief, and disbelief leads to negativity. In the end, what does the Bible say? Don't expect to receive anything with this mindset. The fourth important point is that we can't hang out with people that feed our doubts and disbeliefs. The complaining Israelites hung out together and developed a case of stinking thinking and then ended up infecting almost the entire community. They ate such a healthy dose of negativity until that was all they could see. In fact, you can see in Scripture how frustrated God is that they don't believe in what He is saying, despite all that He had done to bring them to freedom. We have excellent apps that we can put on our phone, our computers, our tablets, where we can read our Bible any time of the day or night. There are apps that will cover nearly every topic one would want to learn about. We must feast on the Word, which will give rise to belief. We must feast on the Word because it will give rise to confidence. Those are the opposite of what we just talked about. And we attend a good Bible-believing church and surround ourselves with people that are encouragers, like-minded, and we wrap around that prayer? My goodness! then we don't have a problem with learned helplessness. So let's end where we began. Let me ask you, how big is your room? What happened to the Israelites? I just told you a long story, a true story. What happened to them? Well, the Israelites paid a heavy toll for their disbelief and negativity. In fact, No one over the age of 40 made it to the promised land. That was their punishment for spending all their time complaining, grumbling, and living in disbelief of a God that traveled with them in a cloud by day and a fire by night. A God that fed them every day and provided for them for their every need along that journey. His thanks was that his people would rather groan than grow. They'd rather go back than forward. In fact, it was their children that enjoyed this amazing, prosperous land. And what of the story called room? Like the dog in learned helplessness, Jack wanted to stay confined in that little room because it was all he knew. He wanted to stay in captivity even though freedom was just outside the door. Like Jack, we can allow our world to be so small and seemingly comfortable that we stay tucked into it. But when the mom hatches a plan for blue skies and reacquainted family, the little boy is scared and comfortable and says, No, I'm just fine. 
Jack preferred the familiar. Or maybe we are like Joy. She longed to go back to the good old days, to the way things were before captivity. Little did she know that things would look nothing like the past. Her new world would have divorced parents, tough media attention, and a struggle to fit into society. She even tried to take her own life. Imagine that. After reaching the freedom she so longed for, she decided life wasn't worth living. At the end of the story, Jack asked if he could go back to the room. In fact, he constantly asked to return after being freed. What struck me about the boy going back to the room was the question he asked his mom. Mommy, is this room? Has it gotten shrinked? He couldn't believe how small it was. He says, It can't really be room if the door is open. Mom says, Do you want me to close it? Jack says, with a shake of his head, Nah. As Jack gazed around the room, he says his final goodbye. Goodbye, plant. Goodbye, chair number one, chair number two, and table. Bye, wardrobe. Bye, sink. Bye, skylight. Then he says to his mom, Ma, say bye-bye to room. Mom and son have one more gaze at the room and turn and leave hand in hand as they exit the room on a snowy day. Knowing that learned helplessness leads to depression, rising stress levels, and inhibits an ability to learn new things and decreases effort, how big is your room? What is it time to say goodbye to? Have you asked yourself the tough questions? Have I applied for that job I've always wanted? Have I researched what my goals are? Do I even know what they are? Have I evaluated the relationships in my life? Do I have healthy relationships? Have I acknowledged areas where learned helplessness has crept in? Have I become codependent in my comfort zone? One final story. When my wife and I had our first child, I was traveling full-time. We agreed that I needed a different job. I loved my job so much, but I couldn't stay in it or I would be an absent father. I decided that I wanted to be a manager and help lead others and serve others. It was a dream of mine to become one. I felt that God was saying, this is the plan I have for you. I did all the things necessary to prepare for that role. I read a number of books. I interviewed a number of great leaders. And I hatched my plan. And many people told me, you're going to have to go backwards before you can go forward. That means I should take a lower-paying role and then position myself for a manager role sometime in the future. But that isn't what I heard the father saying. 
Do you know what happened during my first interview? I was told I didn't have enough experience. What did I do? Another manager role came open, and I was basically laughed at for wanting to apply, but I applied, and I got rejected. You want to know something? Strike two hurt so much. Doubt and negativity tried to enter in, but I said, God, I choose to trust you over what my eyes can see. A third manager role came open with even greater responsibility than the other two that I had applied for. I was told during the interview process that was already promised to another person who had been waiting a long time. What was I to do? I went home, prayed about it, and I went full tilt for that job, trusting that God would determine my fate. And I was told when I was meeting with folks in the interview process, I don't know why we are interviewing you. The job has already been promised to someone else. But you know what? God has a plan and he determines our future. Guess what? The other guy, he got hired. They secured another manager role for me too. So I got the job of manager. See, God cannot be mocked. What he says, he will do. It may not be in our time frame, but he always delivers on time. But we have to take stock of our lives, believe in what he says, and put one foot in front of the other. Let me close by asking, have you grown so used to living in that small room that you've forgotten? that there's a whole world out there, a plan for you, or maybe the deliverance you've been longing for, the deliverance you're asking for. Life is hard and it is filled with struggle. But the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like an eagle. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. The life you want to live does not start unless one foot moves in front of the other. Today, right now, purpose to do something different. The Bible says something unusual. In Acts 17, 28, it says, It is in me that you live and move and have your being. Do you know what that means? All life on this earth was given by God. He carefully formed us for a specific plan. Let me ask you this. Do you believe deep within you that God has your best interest at heart? If you answered yes, then it is time to look forward and throw the negativity, disbelief, and doubt of the past out the window, out of your life, and pick up and begin again. Yes, trials are going to come and it's going to be hard, but those who trust in the Lord and follow His direction will prevail. How big is your room? I hope you've enjoyed listening to today's podcast. 
Would you take a moment and provide a rating, subscribe, and consider sharing this message of encouragement with others? You can also visit us on scottknuckles.com to get more information. Until next time, blessings.